It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means. It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Yeah, baby. Ooh, extra audience for 2018. Yeah. And welcome back to the big show. Hello, everybody. And thank you, fake band. Thank you, fake audience. And additional fake audience. Um, yes, I am a penguin today. Uh I don't think this is going to last long. It's really hot in this thing. Um, I just, uh, we got these for our annual holiday party, which Angel put together at a place called uh, L.A. Snow Day or something like that with a bunch of fake snow. We had a really good time and everybody on the staff had to wear a penguin. So I thought, you know, what the heck? I've got a penguin costume sitting in my office. How can I not wish you guys a happy 2018 without wearing a penguin? Um, so pretty exciting to be wearing a penguin, uh, but you know what? It's really hot. <laughs> yeah, there is something slightly different about me. Whew. There we go. Wow, baby. How's my hair look? Pretty good, huh? So, um, I may actually have to change into my normal shirt. Uh, yeah, I am protecting an egg between my feet, and, um, I can't believe that we haven't been together for a month. Uh, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes ago, I opened up my chat room and I was doing a testing, testing, and uh, Jesse was in there. And uh, he said, oh, we've missed you. And I said, yeah, you know, I missed you guys too. I don't think in seven years of doing Taxi TV that we've ever not been on the air for a 30-day stretch like that. But uh, it's, you know, just... Uh, little holiday stuff going on and for all these various reasons the Mondays didn't pan out so here we are we are back it is January 8th as somebody said for a slightly used um, 2018 I'm excited to do today's show although I've got to admit I'm a little scared because I've got like nine or ten pages of notes and it's like 2241 words worth of notes and uh, I wrote this thing out and didn't go back and read it from top to bottom. So hopefully it will all make sense. But it was inspired by New Year's resolutions and everybody's talking. Oh, yeah. Speaking, my New Year's resolution is to put that up earlier in the show and to put that up. Make sure you like us. And you know what else? Uh, share. Well, I don't have my little share sign with me. <laughs> I would need a sunny and share sign probably. But uh, no, share it with a friend because YouTube likes shares. So um, there you go. But I promised myself that uh, I would do something to address New Year's resolutions, you know, for, for the whole gang out there. Um, early in the new year and as I started writing up New Year's resolution like musician New Year's resolutions oh I'm gonna record more music uh, I'm not gonna stop working on something till it's done and, and it morphed and I realized that procrastination is evil um, procrastination is something that's common to all of us I, I don't think that there's any human being on the planet that uh, doesn't experience procrastination hell even our cat Gracie uh, is a procrastinator I've noticed that uh, there's sometimes when she's out in the backyard and she's sprawled out on the back patio and she sees a bird looks at the bird and thinks yeah I'll kill that bird later so even cats can fall prey pardon the pun to procrastination 
So I want to let you know right up front that if you are not um, interested in making money with your music, turn this episode off. Go watch somebody else's show because uh, this episode is for musicians who want to make money with their music, okay? Seriously, I know that there are musicians who love making music just for the sake of making music. It fills them up. It gives them um, some sort of, of personal gratification on a level that they don't get from anything else. And I get that. I totally get that. And, and knowing that millions of people hear your music is pretty wonderful. But making money while you're doing it is also wonderful, maybe even more wonderful. You know, you can be personally gratified and make income at the same time. So um, for all those people who just want to get their music out there and they're all about creativity, this show might not be for you. So just give me a little heads up now. Um, I think, you know, <laughs> you guys just entertain yourselves in the chat room for a second. I'm going to go pop this thing off because it's getting hotter by the second. I don't want to sit in this thing for 90 minutes. It seemed like such a good idea at the time. But now that I'm actually doing it, it's not such a great idea. Oh no, I'm trapped in my penguin outfit. Oh, there we go. Penguin outfit off. Real shirt on. There we go. Okay. Fix that hair. Look at that. I've got a pompadour like Elvis at the moment. So, anyway, I salute those people who just love making music for the sake of making music and they don't care about making money with it. I get it. It's cool. But this episode is for people who want to make money, uh, but find that they've been talking about it and thinking about it forever, and they just can't get off the dime. They've probably even been thinking about it for decades and seriously haven't done anything. So if that's you, then this is exactly the show for you. We're going to try and figure out how to beat procrastination by figuring out why you're procrastinating. There I am. <laughs> I lost myself. I've got uh, 2,200 words of notes and uh, can't read my own typing. Anyway, many people think that procrastination is caused by a fear of failure. Um, they're thinking that fearing failure is the reason that they don't try to do something or take on a new big project. Oh my gosh, I might fail. What if I fail? Won't that be embarrassing? What if my friends and family see me fail? Okay, that's pretty motivating. But you know what? The, the fear uh, of having people that know you see you fail, almost more embarrassing. I've always said that, like, if I, God forbid, die of a sudden heart attack, I don't want to do it in public because I'd be too embarrassed to have all those people staring down. Is he dead? Um, so one of my favorite authors, and I know that he's also a favorite author of many of you guys, um, is a guy named Stephen Pressfield. And in Stephen Pressfield's book, Turning Pro, he says he calls them amateurs. Um, in other words, people who are not yet professionals are terrified of failure. I think most people, most normal people are terrified of failure. So, yeah, no kidding, Mr. Pressfield. He goes on to say that fear is the primary, because this is a quote, fear is the primary color of the amateur's interior world. Fear is the primary color of the amateur's interior world. Fear of failure, fear of success, fear of looking foolish. <laughs> Obviously, I don't have that fear. I wouldn't do this show every week. Fear of underachieving and fear of overachieving. Hmm, I don't think I've ever experienced that one. Fear of poverty. I have experienced that one. Fear of loneliness and fear of death. 
Um, but mostly, and I'm still quoting here, what we all fear as amateurs is being excluded from the tribe. For instance, uh, the gang, the posse, mother, father, family, your nation, your race, and your religion. The amateur fears that if he turns pro and lives out his calling, meaning that thing that he, he or she is destined to do, he'll have to live up to who he really is and what he's truly capable of. The amateur is terrified that if the tribe should discover who he really is, then he will be kicked out into the cold to die if he fails. Okay, I inserted that part about if he fails. Um, so Pressfield also says, when we're addicted to failure, we actually enjoy it. When we're addicted to failure, we enjoy it. That seems weird to me. But each time we fail, we're secretly relieved. There's a glamour to failure that has been mined for centuries by starving poets, and I would add musicians, um, romantic suicides, and other self-defined doomed souls. The, this glamour inverts failure and turns it into success. So what does that mean um, exactly? I mean, I've seen it thousands of times. Um, I've known plenty of musicians who wallow in their failure and seem to enjoy the attention that blaming others and acknowledging their own failure brings to them as they stand on their soapboxes lamenting how unfair the industry is, how unfair A&R people are, how unfair publishers are, uh, music supervisors, music library owners, and of course taxi screeners. That you know their failure, their lack of success is caused by everybody else. Brings some sort of perverse inversion. I think Pressfield called it um, attention. You know, it's like oh maybe uh, I can gain some sympathy by telling everybody how incredibly upsetting it is that I'm failing and blaming other people in the other uh, for my my own failings. They relish having something to complain about, but all that really does is feed their own egos and narcissistic tendencies as they draw attention to themselves. So it can be an attention-getting device, but it's not for the right reasons. They love to have the attention, they'd love, they would love to have the attention success could give them, but complaining about failure is easier than, but complaining about failure is the easier way to get people to notice you. Uh, it's, it's a sympathy play, or should I say sympathy ploy. It's kind of pathetic, but it's also accepted behavior since the dawn of time. Oh, I went out to kill that mastodon today and got stepped on by it. Yep, blame the mastodon or the penguin if you happen to have one nearby. Um, it's been said, and I, can't, I couldn't find who actually said this, but I know that I've read this in marketing books, that the fear of failure is 25 times more motivating than the desire to succeed. Pretty astonishing, right? So let me repeat that one more time. It's been said that the fear of failure is 25 times more motivating than the desire to succeed. But I don't think it's motivating enough. Clearly, fear of failure isn't enough to drive the vast majority of musicians to succeed or the vast majority would be successful, right? So let's face it, if we define successful, which for the purpose of this show, we're defining it as making income with your music, then most musicians are not yet successful. And again, I want to remind you in case you just tuned in, 
that there are different types of success, but today's show is about success as it's defined by making money with your music. So for those of you who are just doing it for the love of music and the love of creativity, forgive me, but this show is all about making the money or being successful in that context. So, but getting back to failure, and many musicians secretly relishing failure because it gives them an accepted out. It's like they've got an excuse. And that out is the doorway to procrastination, which Merriam-Webster, the Merriam-Webster Collegiate Dictionary defines as to put off intentionally the doing of something that should be done. Putting off intentionally. I think that's the operative word, and obviously when I was writing my notes, I thought so because I italicized it. The Cambridge-Oxford Dictionary cuts us a little more slack by defining procrastination as to delay something. Yeah, duh. (laughs) Kind of understated. Uh, But to delay something. Yeah, okay, putting it off. My hero, Mr. Pressfield, often speaks about resistance. It's a word that he loves, he's obsessed with, and he uses it all the time. It's practically the core principle behind most everything he writes about when he was in, when he's in his nonfiction mode, because he is also, by the way, a great uh, um, fiction writer, author. Um, and believe it or not, remember the golf movie with Will Smith? I can't remember who else was in it, but the movie Bagger Vance? Believe it or not, for those of you who are Stephen Pressfield aficionados, he also wrote that book, which became a movie, Bagger Vance. So he's not just all about, you know, self-help and getting off your butt and doing stuff. But never forget, um, oh no, he says, uh, sorry, I skipped a paragraph. The most pernicious aspect of procrastination is that it can become a habit. We don't just put off our lives today, we put them off until our deathbed. How freaking sad is that? You know, that people, this happens every day, I'm sure. The musicians, songwriters, uh, people who want to do music for film and TV, people who want to get a song cut by a major artist, people who want to be a major artist, they sadly die every day without having achieved that goal. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's what Pressfield means, and I, I've seen it far too recently, actually. But never forget this moment. This is Pressfield speaking still. Never forget, this very moment we can change our lives. There never was a moment and never will be when we're without the power to alter our destiny. The second we turn the tables on resistance, this second we can sit down and do our work. So, yeah, no problem, Steve. You just, like, flick a switch and it's over, right? Resistance is gone. You no longer procrastinate. Sure, buddy. Um... So what is this resistance that Pressfield loves to write about so much? Well, according to him, it's a malignant presence that exists to block you from doing what you most need to do. And I don't mean like uh, fold the laundry or, I don't know, go rake the yard. Um, I'm talking about what you need to do as a person, like to be a songwriter or be a composer or be a book author or be the world's greatest ice skater, whatever. It's that thing that you were born to do that you felt inside of you for your whole life. He often reminds us that the more important a call or action is to our soul's evolution, the more resistance we will find pursuing it. So think about that for a second. If you're like dying to be um, a composer, 
uh, instrumental composer for TV and film, if, if that's what you've always felt that your calling is, that's the thing that you're going to resist the most. Interesting. Okay. And how does resistance manifest itself in the lives of so many musicians who'd love to become successful enough to live off of or even thrive from the income they make from their music? Procrastination, the subject of today's show, which is often linked back to what? Yep, you've got it. Fear of failure. So, as embarrassing as failure can be, and I tend to agree with Mr. Pressfield, but there's an even greater motivated, and it too is based on fear. Okay? Different motivator other than just fear of failure, but it is based in fear. This is my own personal observation, and Stephen Pressfield will undoubtedly watch Taxi TV today and include this in his next book. I think the greatest motivator is fear of not being able to survive. The fear of not being able to survive. Because we've all, all human beings, I believe, unless they're some psychological, psycho babble book somewhere that says not everybody is born with that fear, but everybody has a survival instinct, to the best of my knowledge. And I am not a psychologist. But let me tell you a story about my 93-year-old dad. Um, he's a child of the Depression era. He's still alive. He's 93 years old. I just saw him a couple of weeks ago. That's one of the reasons we didn't have a taxi TV that week. I was in Chicago, freezing my butt off, and uh, actually thought about doing one from uh, his place in Chicago, and then went, you know... I'm here to see my dad. I'm going to give him my complete and undivided attention while I'm here. So I passed on the idea, and you guys just had to suffer through a week without me. Oh, well. <laughs> anyway, um, my dad's a child of the Depression era. We grew up in a small farm town in kind of central northern third of the state of Illinois, about 90 miles away from Chicago. We were surrounded by corn and soybeans as far as the eye could see, and uh, if you want to go to another town, you got there on a two-lane blacktop that cut through a bunch of soybeans and corn. Not that exciting. But uh, if you lived in my hometown, pretty good chance that you were either a farmer or a factory worker. Uh, very, very good, honest people lived there. My family owned a small department store, and our customers were primarily farmers and factory workers. Duh. We were comfortable, but uh, we were pretty far from wealthy. Um, we had a 65 Pontiac Catalina. I remember I loved that car. It was navy blue. Uh, didn't have air conditioning in it or an FM radio. Um, we had a black and white TV until I left for college in the early 70s. And uh, I grew up in about, a, I'm guessing, around a 21 to 2300 square foot house. It was kind of a Dick Van Dyke era, you know, mid-century house with a flat roof and wood beam ceilings. So it was kind of cool and trendy, but not big and fancy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, frankly, it really stood out in our, my hometown because everybody else's house looked kind of like a farmhouse or, you know, traditional, very, uh, like, 1930s, 1940s era homes. So everything was good for our family um, until it wasn't. Um, about 50 years, after about 50 years, my parents' store uh, that was started by my grandfather, it went bust, and my parents were broke. I'm talking really broke. Not somewhat broke, not a little broke, but I'm talking about broke, broke. Um, so my dad was 65 at the time, and my mom was 58, I believe. They'd wiped out their entire savings paying their employees before they locked the door of the front 
front door of the store for the last time. All they had was their house, which I'm sure they must have borrowed against, uh, and a tiny income from a soda machine and a few hundred bucks a month from an investment that my dad made decades before. So they were broke. Uh, And then, like, out of nowhere, my dad, I remember, I I think I was at college or somewhere. Anyway, I wasn't living at home. I was long gone and living far away. Uh, My dad had the genius idea to start a company. and the company was going to sell healthy lunches door-to-door in office buildings in downtown Chicago. And I remember when he told me, he was all you know, very enthused about the idea, and I thought, Dad, didn't say this to him, but, you know, you don't know anything about the food industry. Zip, nada, nothing. Um, but every morning, uh, oh, healthy food, I, I should add, uh, very healthy food. Um so every morning, my mom would hand make salads and wraps, and then my 65-year-old father would get up at 4.30 a.m. and drive about 90 miles in an old, beat-up Ford van that I'm surprised lasted more than a week. Uh, and he would go into downtown Chicago and go office to office, floor by floor, in these high-rise buildings, selling little plastic clamshells with uh, salads and healthy wraps inside. And Somebody just said they lost the signal, but I can see um, still good on my end. I hope it's still good on your end. Anyway, um, okay, so my dad would drive 90 miles every morning, get up at 4.30 and go sell these salads and wraps door to door. Can you imagine starting over from scratch at 65 years old when all your friends are close to retiring? I'm 63, okay? I'm 63, so that's mind-blowing to me. Um, well, guess what? After 15 years of getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning and working pretty much six days a week from 4.30 in the morning until like 5 p.m., my dad retired at 80 years old with a very, very solid retirement fund. Um, My mom retired with him as well. So like I said, he's now 93 years old, and my mom passed away a couple of years ago. So I went to Chicago to spend some time with him a couple of weeks ago, and I said to him, Dad, I'm 63, so it's hard for me to imagine how you found the emotional and physical strength to start a company that required 14 to 16 hours a day, six days a week for all those years. How did you do that? And his response was a single sentence. I didn't have a choice. It was either that or we didn't survive. So the fear of not surviving got him off his butt. It's 65 years old when everybody else would be thinking about retiring. 65-year-old man that worked harder than most 20-year-olds would work to start this company, and he ended up retiring very comfortably. Um, So again, he said, I didn't have a choice. It was either that or we didn't survive. So fear of not surviving, I believe, is the greatest motivator. The need for self-preservation in the truest sense of the word. So jump ahead to late 1991. I had a successful career. I was making $109,000 a year and had 22 grand in the bank at the age of 34 years old. I was a youngster. Um, I don't know. Is my math correct? Eh, Maybe I was 35, 36 years old, somewhere around there. Anyway, I started taxi in a small one-bedroom apartment with my fiancé, now wife, Deborah, uh, who many of you have met at the road rally. 
Uh, and she was in grad school at the same time that I was starting taxi and we had no income. I remember she got like a $6,000 a year stipend to live on while she was in grad school from some organization. Um, and we were broke beyond broke. Then four months, man, that 22 grand was gone. Uh, I worked about 18 hours a day, probably some days like 20 hours a day, seven days a week. There, there was no day of rest for years truly. And I went to bed every single night. I can remember it was like bone chilling fear. Uh, this is 1991, bone chilling fear, petrified. Not just afraid, not just scared, but absolutely petrified. Um, I was terrified. Musicians, by the way, when I opened the door to taxi, I, I thought it was the greatest idea in the world. I thought every musician in the world would go, that's a genius idea. I need to sign up for membership. It was actually the record companies that started calling us right away. Uh, the very first listing we ever ran was for a guy named Craig Kalman, who was at the time vice president of Atlantic Records, and he's now chairman of the board of Atlantic Records. But that's a whole other story. So musicians were not exactly beaten down the door because the concept was so new and so different. Um, anyway, so money went out, nothing coming in. That's a pretty scary feeling. Um, I had a partner at the time named Michael Letterer, who was my best friend from college, and we always joked that someday we'd start a business together. And so when I wrote the business plan for Taxi, I called him up, and he actually invested $70,000 in the company. And you would be shocked how fast $70,000 can disappear when you're starting a company. And I'm pretty good about managing my money. but. I mean, stuff like magazine advertising, which was probably our single business biggest expense. Got to remember, the internet was not even a thing yet. Um, AOL existed, CompuServe existed, and some other service I can't remember the name of. And I remember AOL only had 100,000 subscribers at the time. That's a whole other story, how I opened up Taxi on AOL when they had 100,000 subscribers. Imagine trying, you know, little old me trying to talk them into letting me have, uh, it, there wasn't even a thing called a website or a web page. It was called an area on AOL. Like I said, side story. So I burned through that 70 grand um, with stuff like uh, advertising, letterhead, computers, programmers, phone lines, office equipment, lunch meetings with A&R people, and all that kind of stuff. Deb and I were so broke, this is no exaggeration, we literally had to scrape together change uh, to go out and have a Coke. There was a, a like a El Torito or something fairly close to where we lived in Woodland Hills at the time. So we would scrape together change and we would walk over there to save a little gas, plus it was nice to take a walk, and we would go to the bar and order a Diet Coke and split that so that we could eat the free, you know, like popcorn and tortilla chips that were sitting on the bar. That was going out to dinner for us. Um, it's funny. Uh, yesterday, I went to the grocery store and loaded up on uh, a bunch of meat. So I bought some sausages and it reminded me that... Uh, when I started Taxi and Deb and I were so unbelievably broke, we would take one sausage, like a hot dog sized sausage, and I would cut that thing paper thin. I mean, as thin as I could possibly cut it and then fry it up in a skillet and then take a can of diced tomatoes and dump it over those paper thin slices of charred sausage and make this concoction that we would then dump over rice, 
um, or pasta, and, and that was dinner. You know, we could make a whole dinner for about three bucks. It was pretty wonderful. We still eat that dish, by the way, which is why I bought the sausages yesterday. Anyway, um, Deb was in college or going for her, she's getting a double master's in social work and something else. Um, communal service, I think, and I had to, every month, I would have to rip eviction notices off the door to our apartment um, so that she wouldn't come home and see these pink eviction notices stuck on the front door. Um, and then I would go over to the rental building and beg for mercy and, you know, knew all the people in the rental department in this giant complex we lived in. Somehow skated by every month and uh, eventually we got caught up, but it, it took uh, I think I've mentioned this before in the show. It took seven years for me to get back to that income level that I left or that I was at before I started taxi. So it took seven years to get back to 109000 bucks. But Deb would get home from school and she'd walk into an apartment filled with screeners on the floor, people sitting on the kitchen counter, even on our bed. I remember one time she walked in and there were just papers everywhere and cassettes everywhere and screeners sitting on our bed. And she just walked in and she just got, so you could just see like the tear, you know, it, I, I think she was actually kind of pissed off that she couldn't get down to work. She was a very good student. And it's like, you know, you come home and there are six or eight or 10 people in our little tiny one bedroom apartment. Um, I get frankly, I don't even know why she stayed. And sometimes I wonder why she's still here, but thank you, Deb. Um, so anyway, how did I find the focus and the strength to make it through several years like that? Fear of survival. I'm, I'm a born procrastinator. I am inherently lazy. Like I said in the letter that I sent out to you guys, there's nothing I would rather do than watch TV. I love watching TV. Of course, the whole time I'm watching, I'm noticing instrumental cues or songs and the craft of music supervision, but I love TV. Um, so... It was either I had to hang in there or fail. And, and and if I failed, we wouldn't have had a roof over our head. We barely had food. I mean, we literally couldn't pay rent and buy groceries in the same week. We were that broke. And, and I mean, being homeless was, was a pretty serious consideration. I remember at one point I said to Deb, because uh, I think my parents had moved into a, a studio apartment in Chicago at that point uh, for the sake of their business. I said to Deb, well, we could always move back to my hometown and live in the house I grew up with uh, or in, which was sitting there empty. But that really wasn't an option. Um, and my parents didn't have any money because they were in the startup phase of their company. They were broke. And I know that that always bothered my dad that he wasn't able to be there for us at a time when we could have used some extra dough. But then again, I never asked. So we could have been homeless. I had no choice but to work that hard. And that was that was the point in my life where I realized, okay, fear of survival is the thing that will absolutely stop you from procrastinating. But most people aren't in a situation where they fear losing their survival. You know, most of you watching the show have a roof over your head. You have food on your table. Um, there's nothing in your life uh, that says do music or die, right? But if you want to know how to get how to get past procrastination, quit your job. I've never said this in seven years of doing the show and in 20, almost 26 years of owning taxi. I've never said this to anybody. I've had people come to me and say it, but I've never said it, which is if you really want to be successful in music, there's no greater impetus to become successful than quitting the job you have now and putting your survival and the very survival of your family 
on the line. If you want to find out how to work 18 hours a day and become incredibly focused and incredibly, incredibly fruitful in what you do, being desperate to survive our most basic need, which I don't think is on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I'm not sure if survival is on there, but uh, you know that is a very basic need. And man, oh man, nothing will get you off your butt faster than that. Your life of resistance will be over. So if you want to be inspired to stop procrastinating, consider this. Ooh, this is interesting stuff. According to, wow, I've only been going for a half hour and this is almost done. Yeah, maybe we'll do some Q&A when we're done. Uh, anyway, according to a 2017 Go Banking Rates survey, uh, more than half, actually 57%, of all Americans have less than a thousand dollars in their savings accounts. Got that? More than half of Americans have less than a thousand dollars in their savings account. So, man, if you want to be inspired to not procrastinate, think about how close 57% of Americans are to not surviving. That's a scary number to me. And while that's an improvement from last year, when 69% of Americans reported having less than a thousand bucks, so it went from 69%, almost 70% of Americans didn't have a thousand dollars to their name. Now it's down to 57% in 2017. Well, now we're in 2018, so hopefully it'll go even lower. But that to me is astonishing. How will these people live? In retirement that's what freaks me out I obsess about this I, I'm gonna I'm, I don't think I've ever talked about this on the show before but I think about it like I said I'm 63 years old I've got so many friends that are a couple of years away from retiring you know at the what used to be the normal retirement age of 65 I think now it's maybe 67 or 70 or maybe people just don't retire anymore because how can they retire if they don't have any money blows my mind we're gonna have the the I believe the biggest demographic maybe Millennials are now the biggest demographic but I think it's right isn't it me <laughs> am I not part of the baby boomer generation that is the biggest demographic in America right now how are my contemporaries gonna retire if whatever it was 57% of them don't have a thousand bucks in the bank think about this uh, I just gave this advice to one of my adult children over the weekend. When was the last time you actually sat down and made a family budget and said, okay, this is how much money it costs us to live every month. And I'm not talking about just the, you know, the major food groups on your list or on your um, spreadsheet, but every single thing. Take the last six months of your life, including Christmas presents, including, you know, if you're kids go to birthday parties on weekends, how much you spend on gifts for their friends, um, date night with your spouse, um, everything and anything that you go through in a month and see how much it actually costs you to live like a normal human being, right? Okay, so now I see uh, Sherry Marcus Milano says, I don't ever plan on retiring. I don't think I will either, but I'm talking about have it retiring in the sense that you're free to not work and pursue something that you've always wanted to because you don't need the income 
that would be a form of retirement. I, I don't think I'll ever stop working or ever stop doing things that I'm passionate about. But at some point in my life, I'd like to be able to wake up in the morning and go, gee, I'd prefer to go fly fishing today. Or I'd prefer to go on an archaeological dig or whatever. You know, at some point in your life, you got to have a little me time. And frankly, I've not had any. I've, I've been working pretty much nonstop since I was 13 years old. So that's a dream. Um, anyway, getting back to people not having any money and thinking about retiring. So how much does it cost you just to get by every year? How much are you able to save? If 57% of Americans only have a thousand bucks in the bank, what would you do if you had a major calamity in your life? Let the universe take care of you? I mean, that's all well and good and I'm, I endorse people believing whether it be in God or the universe or something that's bigger than they are. Everybody should have something like that in their life. But you know what? There's no guarantee that you're going to be financially taken care of for the rest of your life. Um, and for those of us who are my age, we don't want to be a burden on our kids. <laughs> Actually, it would be sweet revenge if we could, probably. Um, I want security. I think most people want security, right? I want to know that I've got at least the minimum amount of money that I need to survive. There's that word again. I'm still driven by my need to survive. My fear of losing my family security is more than enough to cause me to work when everybody else isn't. My fear of not surviving is enough to cause me to work about 90 days straight prior to the road rally every year. I've done that for the last two decades, like 90 days without taking a day off, um, working stupid hours. Why? Because I don't want the road rally to be a failure. I don't want taxi to be a failure. And I want them both to succeed so that it puts food on the table and builds a secure future for my family because I want to survive and I want my family to survive. Fear of losing your survival is the greatest medicine in the world for those who procrastinate. My fear of uh, being embarrassed by falling or failing, sorry, <laughs> typo, but failing in front of my friends and family is strong, but not nearly as strong as my need to survive. So whenever I'm dying to be lazy or procrastinate, and trust me, that's about every hour of every day, somehow I always find the strength to persevere because of my survival instinct. So my question for you as we start this new year is, if you know that Taxi has members who are making six-figure income, what's the difference between you and them? And we all know, we do have members that are making six-figure incomes. These people did not procrastinate. I mean, a couple people that have popped into my head, well, Cherry Marcus Milano is in the room. I don't know if her son is in there or not. Uh, but Marcus Cohen and his mom, I, I want to say 300 songs uh, or instrumentals they did in a single year. Uh, I just saw a post by uh, Matthew Vanderbow, one of our beloved members who's from somewhere in Idaho near Boise, uh, Krampa, Tampa, Mampa, uh, Idaho. Anyway, he's the guy with the studio in the uh, tool shed in his backyard. It's a very modest studio, but very effective. He did 500 tracks last year, tracks or songs. He hit his goal of recording and producing, writing, recording, and producing 
500 tracks and songs in a single year. That dude is not procrastinating. Um, is he substantially better than most of you guys? No. He's substantially better at working, probably, than many of us. Um, uh, he's not, he wasn't born gifted. This is a guy who works hard for everything he gets. Are these successful trust or successful taxi members that are making six-figure incomes, are they trust fund babies born with a silver spoon in their mouth? Hell no. None of them. I think I know every one of them, and none of them came from any serious money. Uh, are they luckier than you? I, I think they made their own luck. Um, look, taxi's a level playing field, so the only luck these folks have is that they found something as compelling as my need to survive, and I believe that that's what caused them to fight the resistance and find a way to beat procrastination. Gotta beat it. Beat it to death. And now, here they are, 5, 10, some cases 15 years later, and they're building their nest egg from their music income. And if they manage their income well, they will never have to fear for their survival. They'll never have to worry about it. if they have a roof over their head. They'll never have to take a single sausage and make a bunch of paper-thin slices out of it. All because they don't procrastinate when it comes to making music. So I want you guys to think about that. That if you are not in great financial shape, um, think about your retirement, um, your future your well-being, your survival, and use that every single time that you've got your feet up on the coffee table, your butt on the couch, and a can of soda pop in your hand, and you're sitting there watching TV. How is that going to benefit you when it comes time to survive, and you need money to survive, and God forbid you're not able to work someday. Let's say that uh, you know your day job is some form of manual labor, and you have a spinal injury and you can't work. But you can still make music, right? So, just saying. Um, and I realize that what works for me may not work for everybody, but I'm just throwing it out there for you. If you find that your resistance hands you a basket full of excuses to procrastinate and put off what you've signed up for with Taxi, then ask yourself this question. How much does it cost me to live every month? And then you got to know, cost of goods going up, cost of living it goes up. I think the cost of living index goes up 2 or 3% a year. So however old you are, compound that out until you know, you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s. People obviously live longer now than they used to. And just ask yourself, will I have any money to retire? And then if the answer is no, what the hell? Are you going to work until you're 84 years old? Nobody should have to that doesn't want to. I mean, there's work and there's work, right? Um, if you're making music, yeah, work till you're 84, 85 years old. But if you're, you know, doing manual labor, putting roofing on, or uh, you know, doing something that's brutal on your body like that, do you really want to be doing it? Could you do that in your 80s? So if the answer to that scares the living daylights out of you, then there's the answer you need to be procrastination. Because nothing motivates you better, I believe, than the need to survive. Welcome to 2018 and the end of procrastination. Thank you very much. Oh, I missed the button. <laughs> so, there you go, guys. Way to start the new year out. 
think about this. Go back and watch this episode again later because it's a serious subject. Um, my wife walked in before she saw me wearing the penguin outfit. She goes, why? Why are you wearing that? I said, because this is a pretty serious show. You know, I, I kind of wanted to start the new, hour, new year out with like, yay, rah, rah. And I realized as I was putting this together that this is really serious stuff. And when I look out uh, from the stage at the road rally and I look at the, the average age of taxi members, these are not a bunch of 22-year-olds for the most part. You know, if I had to come up with a median age, it's probably in late 30s. But I, I see people in the crowd that range from teens all the way up to 80-year-olds. Um, and I worry about our older members that still have the dream. They love making music. And I go, why, why, why have these people waited for decades? Thank God they've joined Taxi. Thank God they're finally doing something about it. But, you know, I, like I said, I am chief procrastinator uh, or procrastinator in chief at the Lasco residence. And it's very easy for me to sit down, at, you know, at seven o'clock and start watching TV and, and not move until midnight. Um, but yet, somehow, somehow, I mean, I found a way to get 2,240 words done, 41 words for the show today. Um, somehow I found the way to not procrastinate yesterday and get those emails written um, that went out and talked about today's show. Uh, I work every weekend. I, I literally don't think I get more than two or three weekends a year where I have absolutely nothing that I do related to taxi. So there you go. Uh, but Michael, are you listening to the cues when <laughs> Linda Cullum asks, frankly, Linda, I, yes. <laughs> oh, as a matter of fact, uh, this weekend uh, I was looking around Netflix to find something new to watch. Um, Deb and I watched two seasons of the TV show The Crown over the last few days about the royal family. And some of it's fictional, some of it's probably historical and accurate. Uh, really, really, really beautifully shot, beautifully edited. The acting on the show... Um, the woman who plays the queen, I believe her name is Anna Foy. I've never heard of her. Ugh, amazing actress. Just She's everything an actor should be. Just She's one of those people that cannot say a word for 30 seconds. You know exactly what she's thinking by nothing more than the movement of her eyes and the, maybe the way her lips are, you know, whatever. You can just see by her facial expressions what she's thinking and you totally believe that she is the queen. She's absolutely regal. Uh, just incredible. Uh, Steve Pullman says, great show. Yep. So anyway, after we ran out of that, Deb went in the kitchen to put dishes in a dishwasher or something and I was sitting in the family room looking for something to watch. I ended up watching something called The Fighting Season, which is a... Um, what do they call those? Not a documentary, a uh, docu-series um, about our troops in Afghanistan. And I'm watching the show. I mean, it's real. They've got uh, Ricky Schroeder. What show was Ricky Schroeder on when he was a kid? He was a child actor. Anyway, Ricky Schroeder is one of the executive producers on the show. And uh, I'm watching the show going, I cannot believe the bravery of these men and women uh, at one point, they're involved in a firefight, and the cameras are running. And, and I got to tell you, that was the moment where I said, uh, anybody else would, like, poop themselves. 
and just like, as flat as they could get on that ground and just stay there till the shooting was over. And you literally see bullets whizzing by them. It's like, how the hell do you keep your head on straight and, and know what to do? And it, of course, it all goes back to their training and of course their bravery. But man, the show I, I think is amazing. Um, and I'm surprised I'd never heard of it before, but of course, I had to watch the credits at the end. Uh, the music is largely just um, drones, you know, like synth pads. And, and oh. It's almost like, I don't know how many of you know about this, but there's a thing called room tone, that when you're doing audio post-production, if you don't have some form of room tone um, in a room when people are, are talking to each other, dialogue in a TV show or a film, whatever, there almost always has to be room tone, which could just be, you know, sound of an air conditioner off in the distance running, just that general hmm. Anyway, the music in this show is almost like room tone in that you don't really even hear it most of the time other than the opening theme and the, and the closing credits. But the, the cues that are used um, are really, really simple, and I was a little curious to see who the music supervisor was and lo and behold, it's uh, Mason Cooper, who was a rock star at the Road Rally this past year. Um, he will definitely be back at next year's Road Rally. I have such tremendous respect for that gentleman. He is so incredibly good at what he does. There are some music supervisors that are just good music pickers. This guy does it all. He, he picks the music, he edits the music, he understands the legalities. Um, just every possible aspect of improving what music does to picture in a show or a film or commercial, whatever I'm sure that he's working on, has got to be better because of his knowledge, which is so deep, and his respect for the craft. He's just an amazing guy, and uh, he was pretty blown away by the, the Road Rally experience. I know he'll be back next year, and I can't wait to have him back. Anyway, so yes, the answer is I do watch um, TV and constantly listen to cues. Uh, uh, Dean says the marvelous Miss uh, Meisel uh, watched two episodes of that the other night and uh, waiting for Deb to catch up with me. Really, really, really good show. Um, awesome show. Uh, Lucy Sustar in the room. Hey, Lucy, how are you? It was great to see you at the rally. Uh, Lucy and I have known each other for 15 years, maybe, something like that. Um, I remember Lucy was on a compilation we did years ago um, for a charity. Uh, I can't remember the name of the charity, but um, kids that were, were dying of AIDS. Um, and we did, uh, this was the idea of a young woman in Milwaukee, I believe, named Erin, and I can't remember her last name, but she came up with the idea of doing a CD that the charity could sell to raise money for the kids. And we actually had the kids come in, and they were uh, the choir for background vocals on a song that I did with them that I produced, um, funny enough, at the studio that the band live recorded at, uh, in Milwaukee, I believe, memory serves. Anyway, um, talk about the hardest session I've ever done in my life. Looking out through, and of course, I was out in the room working with the kids. And I went back in the control room, looking through the glasses. There were like a dozen kids um, singing the chorus. Um, 
and I just remember just choking back the tears knowing that every one of those children would be dead because at that point, if you had AIDS, there was like a 99% chance you were going to die. And I remember finding out a year ago that many of those children had died. So that, that was tough. But Lucy had a song on there, if I remember correctly. And um, it was uh, that CD. I should play that CD on the show sometime. It was pretty special. Um, so there you have it. Um, any questions? Uh, oh, here's a question now from Fen Tamalonis. Michael, what would you suggest for a broke college-age kid that's trying to find a job in his degree? I really want to keep doing taxi. Um, what's your degree? <laughs> I need to know more. So fill me in, Fen, and I'm happy to take a shot at giving you some advice. Uh, you're right, Miss Meisel's on Amazon, um, which if you're not an Amazon Prime member, you need to be. Amazon Prime rocks. Silver Spoons. Ricky Schroeder is on Silver Spoons. And now, I mean, seriously, when you watch that show um, and know Ricky Schroeder is actually credited as being one of the camera people on the show, I mean, these guys were right in the thick of firefights. I'm not talking about 200 feet away with a long lens or half a mile away with a long lens. I'm talking about three feet away from guys that, you know, are getting shot. Three feet, I mean, next to them. And I don't know what the hell makes anybody crazy enough to want to do a TV show like that, but God bless him. He did it. Um, electrical engineering, um, in the sense that you're going to build... Uh, uh, breaker boxes or electrical engineering in the sense that you want to be a chip designer um, so you want to get a job in his degree I'm trying to find a job I don't know honestly I, I can't think of anything uh, I know a couple of pretty high-end chip designer friends of mine, but I don't know how they started out. Um, I had one friend who passed away a few years ago. He was a patent attorney that was also also had a mechanical engineering degree, and I believe is EE. Uh, he ended up becoming a patent attorney and got flown around on private jets from big companies like Microsoft and, and defended them in these giant patent infringement suits. Um, or went after people on their behalf as well, probably. Um, I, I don't know how you start out with that stuff. Robotics and controls engineering. Okay, now we're talking. Robotics. Um, oh, gosh, what's the guy's name? Anyway, any of the drone companies. If I were you, if I that's what I want to go into, I would absolutely try and get yourself a job in a drone company um, self-driving taxis, autonomous vehicles, that stuff is right around the corner. Um, okay. Uh, Paul Croteau says, the degree is not as important as the internships you get while in school. I completely agree. Um, okay. Uh, Yeah, actually, you know what? You're young enough where you can afford to make mistakes. 
that's the cool part uh, boy have you guys been reading the interview that I did with Sherry uh, Sherry Marcus Milano who's in the chat room right now uh, it's in the most recent uh, edition of the taxi newsletter which is on our website at taxi.com just click on newsletter in the uh, upper navigation thing anyway uh, Sherry's had a phenomenal life of success to varying degrees but she always comes out with a smile on the other end she's just like done it all and her story I mean it's a, a three-part interview and, and as I'm editing the interview just going my god I love this woman so Sherry hats off um, she is inspiring to know and when you read the interview even more inspiring um, Okay, now we're off and running on degrees, so maybe I should just let you guys chat and I can go. Uh, I'm actually doing a meeting in 45 minutes with the staff. We've got a new staff person. It just started today. Her name is Grace. So we're going to do um, a little get-together in the conference room to welcome Grace to the staff. Um, John Pearson giving great advice. Uh, stay with taxi Lucy Sustar says she read the interview it was awesome uh, not as awesome as the picture of Sherry from the 80s all of us on the staff are like wow check that out um, you're welcome Sherry uh, hugs right back to you just I, I enjoyed editing that interview reading it you know because I had to read it to edit it and I was just sitting there with like this big smile on my face the whole time um, Michael, Vicky Flaweth wants to know, Michael, in your experience, do successful folks set a routine? <sighs> you know, it, it depends on the kind of success and what they do. I mean, a, a good friend of mine used to own Guitar Center, the whole chain. Um, he does not strike me as somebody who had a strict routine. Um, most no you know honestly most of the people I know that range from you know solo independent musicians up to corporate titans if you will um, I can't think of many people that had a routine except I will tell you that the taxi members who I've seen that are the most successful for the most part have a routine that they treat the guys who are doing instrumental cues primarily um, and have left their day jobs, Matt Vanderbilt being a great example, um, he pretty much has a routine. Uh, he gets up and, and starts his day and goes outside, sits down. I believe he once told me at like 10, by 10 or 10.30 in the morning, he's working. Um, so he treats that as his day job. He was a college professor until a year and a half ago. So, you know, he knows what it's like to have a routine. So he just applied that same work ethic to his music and treats the music um, you know, as his new routine. Um, Sherry, on the other hand, from what I read in the interview, is, is somebody that's always been able, uh, 
like a butterfly to you know flit around and, and land on something and turn it into something and then whatever life threw at her um, which in one case was her children and she loves them dearly and she should because uh, at least one of them I know is an awesome guy and Sherry said I can't go on the road anymore so how can I take my love of music and, and creating music and uh, she started doing jingles and when you read the story about how she pitched her jingles uh, it, it's funny and inspiring um and if you know sherry at all you'll know it, it'd be really hard to say no to sherry <laughs> uh, all right uh when you're starting out oh this one's from aaron michelle hi aaron uh okay i've got one when you were starting out deciding whoa i lost it it scrolled off the page When you were starting out deciding where to allocate your resources, good versus best, um, how did you decide and prioritize? Uh, I was in survival mode, so generally speaking, things that were priorities, and, and frankly, my life is probably, no, that's not true. I'm going to go back to that in a second. At the time, everything was a priority because everything needed to be done, and it was basically me, although in the beginning, Deb worked with me a little bit. Um, she would probably work two to five hours at night. She would step to like two o'clock in the morning stuffing envelopes with me. We would handwrite addresses because we didn't have label making software yet for mass mailings we were doing. She would put stamps and envelopes with me. Um, sometimes we'd order a couple pizzas and feed some friends that would come over and help us with that stuff. But most of the time it was me answering the phone and, and reaching out to the companies and making sure the screeners were doing their work and all that kind of stuff. So whatever was most in my face um, was the thing that got the most attention. Now, uh, it's funny because Deb works at Taxi uh, and she is very much a, Michael, you've got to fix this right now. We need to move staff around into different offices or we need to do this, we need to do that. Man, when my wife decides something needs to be done, um, she is not a, a wife who's famous for henpecking her husband, me. But when it comes, she's like a different person here in the office than she is at home. And she will follow me around and wag her finger at me. This needs to be done. That needs to be done. And I'm always thinking three or four steps out. I'm thinking that whatever move I make, like kind of like a chess move, um, what are the ramifications? What are the unintended consequences? Um, so I've learned how to balance thinking ahead three or four steps, thinking big picture, unintended consequences, intended consequences, and then synthesizing kind of a battle plan based on that stuff. So that's how I do it now as a grown-up. Um, but when I was first starting out, it was what, you know, it, it could have been something like make a bank deposit, go to the post office, um, order printing, um, write a new ad. Uh, I was the customer service department, so I probably spent six or eight hours a day on the phone with, with taxi members that had issues with critiques they got or calling up with questions about a listing, that sort of stuff. Um, let's see, uh, Charlie Wilson, Charles Wilson says, Pressfield in the War of Art mentions his daily routine at the beginning of the book. He goes and writes for six hours from nine to three. Um, I don't know if I told you guys, but we were this close to having Mr. Pressfield uh, at the road rally, not in the, at the 2017 rally, but at the 2016 road rally. Uh, and then he called me and just said, 
I just don't do live stuff on a stage very well, and I just, I, I think he had a little stage fright, maybe. I don't know. Great guy. I love his books. Love his books. Don't just love them a little bit. I love them a lot. If you've never read The War of Art, read that. Um, what's the other one? Uh, War of Art, um, Getting Stuff Done. What was the name of the second one? And then there's this one, which I've I don't know if this is the second or third in the series, Turning Pro. This is probably my least favorite of the three, though. The other ones are better. Unfortunately, they are at home and not sitting here in my office at the moment. Um, you know what else I do? Uh, wow, it rained today in L.A. That's a big deal. I know you guys are going to laugh at me, and yes, I do have a phone, but I have about 30 years of these guys saved up on a shelf that sits about 10 feet, 12 feet away from me in my office. I can go back and look up anything um, because I keep it in these guys, and uh, I don't want to hold this up because there may be stuff in here, but here's a Saturday for me, okay? Um, I'm not going to hold this up. But, you know, it's broken out week at a glance, every hour of the day. And this was Saturday, November 18th. Um, and this was after the road rally. So this was like a week after the road rally had finished up. Uh, maybe two weeks after the road rally had finished up. I had a 10 o'clock uh, breakfast meeting with a taxi member kind of near my house. Um, I had to review resumes for a potential new staff member. Um, I had to write a taxi TV promo. Um, I had to do some promotional emails. I had to edit the Steve Dorff interview, which was, I had to whittle 3,700 words down to about 2,800 words. Um, return phone calls. I think we, I had about five or six phone calls I had to return that day. Um, I had to send questions to somebody that was interviewing me wanted to know if I had any questions that I would like to have covered. Um, I had to have a meeting at three in the afternoon with a marketing friend of mine and then I had to call my father in the afternoon. So that was a Saturday for me. Um, frankly, I prefer to spend my Saturdays flying remote control airplanes or drones, but sometimes you just got to do the work. Um, Uh, this is a great quote. Uh, Tony Bat Petroli says, dreams don't work unless you do. Um, that's right. Uh, Vicky says the other book is Do the Work, uh, the other work, uh, other book by Stephen Pressfield. Um, whoa, they're scrolling by so quickly. Michael, do you read or listen to Michael Hyatt? No, I'm aware of Michael Hyatt, but haven't gotten to him yet. Uh, Charles Wilson says, Michael Hyatt ha advocates paper planners and has a, a neat one available. Yeah, I love my paper planners. Um, it's just, it's right there, and I can just go chink, 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 go down the list and, and tick it off. 
Um, Steve Pullman says he's glad I don't have your job. Um, sometimes I wish I didn't have my job. <laughs> uh, oh my goodness, I've lost my place. Uh, Linda Cullum learned 18 Christmas carols and sang at assisted living places over the holidays. Awesome. Um, Chanteuse says she has an old planner library as well. It's great to just keep those things. It's amazing. Sometimes I go back and find stuff. Um, everybody else would be going, oh, I wish I could remember what that meeting was about. I wish I could remember something. And I've got it in my, uh, my planner. Uh, Paul House asks, how many pieces should we look to submit per year? I can't give you advice on it. It depends, you know. Uh, look, I mean, somebody who's working a full-time 40-hour-a-week job and comes home to a family um, is obviously going to have less output than somebody who has um, walked away from his or her job and decided to do music full-time. Uh, if, if music is your full-time gig, if doing cues is your full-time gig, I would shoot for one a day. Uh, and plan on doing 300 in a year. That's a hard goal, but an achievable goal, and you do get faster and better the more you do it. Makes sense, right? Um, goal is six-figure income, therefore how many per year to reach this after five years? Well, uh, I would say that the people who have the six-figure incomes have I want to say a thousand to fifteen hundred cues out there in the world, maybe more than that. It, and I'm talking about original, unique cues, not cut downs and alt mixes and stuff. Um, and, and I will tell you, um, I think Matt Vanderbilt is a good example. Uh, you know, people talk about the five-year plan uh, with Taxi. Well, it's kind of it's. We didn't come up with that. Uh, that was, frankly, invented by our members. Um, I think it might even go back to either John Mazay or Matt Hurt, who are longtime taxi members. And um, I did a show. I, I interviewed Matt Hurt in his home studio, I don't know, four or five months ago. And we talked about the five-year plan. But the people I know who are successful will all tell you that it took about five years um, before things started to kick in for them. Um, I just saw somebody post on our forum the other day in the success story area that their first year they made zero. The next year, and I'm just doing these numbers off the top of my head, but they're in the ballpark. First year was zero. Second year was like a thousand bucks that they earned. The third year was, you know, like 2,200 bucks. And the fourth year was 5,000. Um, very, very typical to hear about a progression like that where the, the numbers aren't really big. Um, but then all of a sudden things just kind of hit critical mass and explode. And they, and I've seen people go from that $5,000 income year to a $25,000 income year, a year or two later. And then it seems like 50 K is kind of the launching pad, um, that they seem to go from the 50 K notch to the six figure notch rather quickly. And I think a lot of that has to do with number one, they've become more expert because of repetitive, uh, uh, 
you know, doing the same thing every day, uh, day in and day out. And of course, the other thing is reaching critical mass with the amount of music that's out there in the field in various libraries and catalogs. And one thing that so many of our members um, who are successful will tell you is that it's a relatively small number of their overall library of cues that may be in various places, that are in various places. Um, but it's typically some subset of those cues that tend to make money over and over and over again. And they've never necessarily been able to quantify or uh, qualify um, exactly, you know, if they could figure out what the 33 cues are that are making them the most money, why don't they just do a bunch more of those? I don't think anybody has ever successfully figured that out and made it work. Um, right, Ron Kajawa did a cool Facebook post recently. Uh, I think he might have been the, the gentleman He's a great guy, by the way, um, that did the whole thing about, uh, you know, here's what I made before I knew taxi was zero, and then the next year it was a thousand, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he posts good stuff. Sherry uh, Marcus Milano says it's actually surprising which cues get placed a lot. You know, a guy that got a refund from us the other day, and uh, I saw some of the, I saw his refund request letter, and I saw some of the back and forth uh, that was annotated in our database that some of the staff members had had with them, and he basically was complaining. It's like you guys don't recognize great music. I make great music. I'm a great composer, and you just don't know what great is. Um, uh, I, this guy could be the greatest composer in the world, but if he's not doing music that people need for their projects, then it's great music that will go unused. doesn't mean that it's less great. It just means that it's less useful. Um, Chantuz says the 80-20 rule, absolutely. 80% of the income coming from 20% of your cues. I think everybody who is successful would tell you that's very much in the ballpark. Um, hey, Kajawa's in the room. Hey, Ron, how are you? Uh, <laughs> Paul Croteau says, I think letters are that like that are why Michael has gray hair. It's not your talent. It's your ability to do what the customer wants and needs. And thank you. My hair is not that gray, Paul. Considering I'm 63 and have never touched my hair with anything other than my hand to make it look like Elvis. Um, do most people write for specific cues or they write music in general and then find which submission to send it to? My money would be on the people that write to specific cues are probably more fruitful and make more money than people who just create and then see if they can find a place to put it. Um, I mean, why not? If somebody walks, I always use the shoe store analogy because twice and three times in my life, I've been a shoe man. Um, my last job being when I was, I think, 19 years old, right before I got into the recording studio side of the business, I had a job at a place called the Village Bootery on Kendall Drive in South Miami. And uh, look, if a woman walked in and asked for a size 7 pot de pump in beige, and I brought her out a men's 
Oxford in a 10.5D wingtip, she would look at me like, what are you smoking, kid? So the music industry is the same. Uh, why not create what they're asking for? just makes more sense. I mean, dear God, they're telling you what they need. Um, <laughs> I see Aaron Michelle says that she started with do the work. It's easy to pick up and to put down. Um, I didn't find it so easy to put down. Once I started that book, I think I plowed through the whole thing in one sitting. Um, oh yeah, I still remember a lot about shoes. Here's another, here's a factoid that most of you don't know, is I worked for a company when I was 17 or 18 years old. I was a professional scuba diver for a company in Miami called Reef Incorporated, that I'm sure, well, maybe it's still there, I don't think it is. Anyway, we collected saltwater fish for um, aquariums, pet stores, sea aquariums, um, collectors all over the world. And uh, why am I telling? Oh, there was a point in my life where not only did I know a lot about shoes, but I knew like the names of every saltwater species you could think of around the world. I mean, I, I was a walking encyclopedia of saltwater fish. Um, hasn't done much for me lately, but it sure was a good time. Shantou says, I'm trying to start uh, start trying cues instead of songs only. I think that's the way to go. You know what? You can always, look, cues are shorter. Um, they're less involved. They don't require lyrics. Lyrics are really, really, really hard to write. Singing a song can be really, really difficult. So jump into the cue side of things, and what you'll find is that things will come together much faster than doing a song a week if you're doing a cue every day or a cue every two days. And you get more familiar with the, your equipment, you, your production years improve, um, you become more contemporary sounding because you're right in the thick of it, and lo and behold, you can take those skills back to the songs after you've started to get a lot of your cues placed in libraries and, and maybe even get in some shows, that becomes your motivator to, you know, stay busy, be productive, and you can take that skill set and apply it to songs. Um, Paul says, one of the biggest mistakes I see new taxi members making is trying to justify their existing work as a good fit for a listing instead of writing your best shot at the actual request. True, true, true. Um, all right. So I think I'm going to end the show for me. You guys can, can hang out um, and keep chatting, but... You know, I want you to really think about what we talked about today. Um, I, I would assume that almost all of us watching the show, hopefully all of us, have a roof over our head, food on the table. But at some point, we're all going to need income that is not going to be coming from our day job. Um, we're going to be in retirement mode, whatever you know, shape or form that takes. And I think that music is the greatest retirement plan out there because it's not like investing in stocks where it's very speculative and risky. Um, bonds are safer but don't have a very high rate of return. Um, real estate requires a lot of work um, but can be very lucrative. But, you know, serpentine curve up and down, always heading north over time. 
but music um, music is something that you all love and you're watching the show and you're taxi members for a reason and why not invest in yourself and make that the thing that is your retirement you just need the motivation and please go back and listen to what I said about procrastination because it, it is evil um, boy if you got rid of all of these and procrastination the world would be a better place so that's it for this week once again don't forget to subscribe don't forget whoops, <laughs> don't forget to like us and please hit the share button and yeah make us popular with YouTube um, I will see you next week frankly I don't know what I've got a couple of options for next week's show and I'm waiting for a return phone call so I don't know what I'm gonna do for next week's show I am trying to get Shirelli back on the show it's been a while since we've had Rob Shirelli um, you know multi-platinum record producer mixer engineer um, Deb and I spent New Year's Eve as we almost always do with uh, Rob and Teresa Shirelli we love those guys and he and I love being on the show together so hopefully we can get them back because it's been a while so with that I bid you adieu a fond farewell and see you next week on another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live bye you guys